Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited today to have with me a very special guest, Rachel Kruer, who is, in my mind, pretty much the infallible source of all pharmacy knowledge. She's one of our uh, clinical pharmacy specialists in the surgical critical care unit here at Johns Hopkins, uh, and a fantastic person. I've had the privilege of working with her uh, as a fellow and then as an attending. Uh, and really, Rachel, to me, is just a go-to for whenever I have a question about anything related to antibiotics and, and uh, medications and basically anything in life in general, I think. So, Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jed. So what we're going to do is a two-part series, and this first uh, part is going to be Bugs and Drugs Part 1, and basically what we'll do is go over with Rachel the basics of what you should know about bacteria and the antibiotics that we use to treat them. And then uh, we'll have Rachel back another time, and we'll do Part 2, which is going to be an overview of common infections in the ICU and how we treat them. And specifically, that'll relate to the surgical ICU. All right, Rachel, let's jump right in, and let's talk about sort of a lot of people will hear the term pharmacodynamics. And first, tell me, what does that mean? What is pharmacodynamics, and how is it different than pharmacokinetics? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We throw around these big words about um, what the drugs do, and, and so it's important to understand the difference between the two. So pharmacodynamics really describes what a drug does to the body, whereas pharmacokinetics are really what the body does to the drugs. Okay. That's kind of you know what I've heard as well. I think that's a good way to, to um, remember it. And then in terms of what do you think, if you were giving people who are not pharmacists just a general overview what are kind of important pharmacodynamic principles that you think they should know? Well, when we get into a little bit of our conversation about the drugs that we use to treat these infections, we'll talk about time-dependent killing and concentration-dependent killing, and it's important to understand the difference between those two because it really affects how we dose antibiotics. And as we know, the, the right dose at the right time is, is really important and linked to outcomes, of patient, especially in patients with septic shock. So when we talk about time-dependent killing, we're talking about drugs that require an adequate time above the minimum inhibitory concentration in order to exhibit their most optimal killing, whereas concentration-dependent killing is really peak-dependent killing. The, the prototypical drug that we or class that we think about here are aminoglycosides, where we're really worried about the, the Cmax, the concentration uh, that you can achieve above the MIC. And then there are some drugs that are sort of a hybrid between the two. Uh, they're sort of total exposure dependent, where we think of them as, as uh, AUC over MIC, so the area under the curve over the minimum inhibitory concentration. And drugs um, that exhibit this type of killing would be vancomycin, for example. So the minimum inhibitory concentration I, I alluded to is, is really important because it's the lowest concentration of antibiotic which inhibits the growth of the bacterium. And MICs are specific to bug-drug combinations. So it's sort of comparing apples to oranges. You have to think about what bug you're dealing with and then what concentrations you can achieve with the drug that you're giving. So they can't be compared directly, but you can see sort of over time if you're growing the same bug, if the MIC is starting to creep, that perhaps you would then be worried about resistance. 
Great. And there are some specific uh, combinations or some bacteria where uh, they may develop resistance over time. And so I always like to ask you or one of our other pharmacists, when I get a sensitivity report with MICs, exactly, you know, because some may be sensitive to more than one drug, and then it's important to think about which is the most appropriate drug. It's not always as easy as just picking one that's labeled as sensitive. Is that right? That's exactly right. So you have to think about whether you you can achieve good tissue penetration, and we're going to get into some of the uh, nuts and bolts of this a little bit later, but you have to think about the tissue that you're trying to treat and whether you can achieve good tissue penetration um, if you're able to give a maximal dose to achieve time or concentration above the MIC, um, and also the potential toxicities, which for the most part our antimicrobials are fairly well tolerated, but there are some exceptions to that that we'll need to consider. Um, it's also important to think about if you're using, if you have a resistant organism and you're thinking about using a combination that can provide some synergy, how to pick antibiotics that can be synergistic uh, when used together. So often these are antibiotics that have two different mechanisms of action, um, whereby you get some uh, additional bang for your buck, if you will, when you use them together. Especially when we think about treating gram-negative organisms that have an additional outer membrane, um, we might consider using an aminoglycoside in combination with a beta-lactam antibiotic. Um, And that's because when you use a cell wall active agent like a penicillin, you're more able to get good concentrations into the bacterium of the aminoglycoside, um, effectively decreasing the MIC, if you will. Great. And when you look at an MIC uh, chart, or you get your, what we think of as, I've got my sensitivities now coming up in the electronic medical record, and it's giving me MICs, and it gives me numbers like greater than 16, or less than 1, or 4. What does that mean? How do I interpret that? Yeah, it's important to know the breakpoint in order to interpret that. Most microbiology labs are going to provide this, whether or not, they're going to provide the interpretation. So they're going to tell you whether or not it's susceptible, intermediate, or resistant. And certainly you want to choose something that's susceptible um, if that's an option. Most of the time it is, although sometimes we get into cases where that's not an option, and that's where we might need to think about combinations of antibiotics. Um, So breakpoints are important. Um, That's the the highest MIC at which the antibiotic will be able to achieve good killing. Um, And above that, you're going to see that the interpretation is is intermediate. Um, And so if you can choose something that's susceptible, that's obviously the most ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned before, this is in a test tube. So you also have to make sure you can get that drug to where you want it to go. And that's why we might choose one thing for a a central nervous system infection like meningitis. We might choose something else for an infection in the lungs. And we might choose something else for an intra-abdominal infection because different drugs are going to have better penetration, like you said, in different areas of the body. Absolutely. Okay. Now, we're not going to talk, I think, much about pharmacokinetics because that has to do with kind of the body's clearance of the drug and all of that. And we're not, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're not going to really get into that today. We won't, although we will discuss whether or not, we'll discuss some specifics about some of the of the drugs and, and you know, whether renal dose adjustment is something that we should consider and things like that. Um, but for the most part, we're going to limit the pharmacokinetic discussion, um, first of all, because most of the people listening aren't looking at a whiteboard where we can do some extensive calculations. Um, So we'll save it for another time. Great. All right. Now, one last thing before we get into some specifics um, about uh, specific uh, bugs and drugs. When we think about generally categorizing bacteria, if I remember correctly, the overarching way that we do this is gram-positive and gram-negative. That's kind of the first division, right? So remind me, what's the difference and why do we care? 
Yeah, so the first piece of information that you're going to get back from your microbiology report is whether or not the organism is, a gram, is, a gram, is gram positive or gram negative. You'll, you'll see the gram stain results first. And, and that will give you an indication of, of the type of bug that you're dealing with. Um, so gram positive, then uh, subsequently, after you see if it's a gram positive or gram negative, then um, the next characterization is going to be whether it's aerobic or anaerobic, and then whether you're dealing with cocci or um, bacilli. So for gram-positive cocci, for example, it's really helpful to know if you're dealing with a, an aerobic gram-positive cocci, whether or not these organisms are in chains or clusters, because this is going to give you an indication of whether or not Basically, you're dealing with staph, and the one that, the staph that we're most concerned about is staph aureus, or if you're dealing with strep or enterococcus, for example. If you're looking at gram-negative organisms, um, we're usually most concerned about gram-negative rods, um, and aerobic gram-negative rods are often divided as into lactose fermenters and non-lactose fermenters. Lactose fermenters being things like E. coli and Klebsiella, non-lactose fermenters, um, are then often subdivided into oxidase-positive and oxidase-negative. And if you see that you have an oxidase-positive non-lactose fermenter, this is where you're going to be concerned about organisms like Pseudomonas. Great. So thinking about these ways that these are divided up, both uh, gram-positive, gram-negative, aerobic, anaerobic, and then uh, cocci and bacilli, that helps to give us an idea before we even know definitely what the bug is, right? So this is just based on initial testing, gram stain and initial testing. Before we grow out a definitive bug, we already can start tailoring antibiotic therapy. Absolutely. It's a little bit tricky to narrow antibiotics, and if you have a really sick patient in front of you, it's a little tricky to narrow antibiotics based on the gram stain because uh, unless you're really confident about your source of infection or what a patient's grown before, in which case maybe you would do that. Um, but it's really important, though, that we use the gram stain to help make sure that our therapy uh, contains the ability to treat the organism that we've identified. There are some very smart tests out there. You may have at your institution um, a rapid diagnostic test, a, a DNA test that can be performed really, really rapidly um, after the after obtaining cultures, especially blood cultures. Um, and and those tests might be able to tell you within three hours or so what organism you're dealing with. In that case, you really could narrow antibiotics. Mm -hmm. um, if you learn, for example, with uh, with a rapid genetic test that you have MSSA, methicillin susceptible staph aureus, then you would probably use your top shelf therapy, like I, I like to call it, um, of oxacillin versus continuing vancomycin. Right. And so we'll get more into kind of how to approach specific infections when we do the second part. But in general, I think what you're saying, and I completely agree, is that when you have a gram stain, uh, before you have definitive data, if you've got a very sick patient, you don't want to assume that anything that grows initially or anything that comes up on the grand scene is all you're dealing with. While you've got a, a very sick or crashing patient or an extremely septic patient, you want to be broad at first. And then after you have kind of finalized data, you can decide whether to narrow, whether or not you think you've captured everything that's going on. Um, but you can certainly start to get an idea. And then you're saying that you can, if let's say you saw gram-positive cocci and clusters, you'd be much more likely to make sure you have VANC on board because you're potentially looking at MRSA. Exactly. Unless you had, like I said, unless you had one of those um, very intelligent rapid diagnostic tests, which may be able to help you be um, 
have the most optimal drug therapy on at the time, um, you would probably want to be sure that you were covering MRSA if you didn't if you didn't know. Right. Um, and like you said, if you had a gram positive cocci that came back um, in clusters. Great. All right. Uh, and are we going to be getting those uh, rapid DNA tests anytime soon? Uh, we actually do have them here at, at Johns Hopkins. We use a we use a, a Veragene test, and I'm not advocating for or against that, but that's a tool that we use here um, in order. For, so for any blood culture that comes back um, as a gram positive, then within a couple, I think within three hours, we we can know if it's staph or strep or enterococcus, and it will also tell you if it's MSSA or MRSA, um, and and the, if it's enterococcus, efficalis or efacium, or none of those, in which case you have to wait until you actually get the results of the culture. That's great. I actually didn't realize that that's how we were doing it, but, uh, but that's fantastic. All right. So let's move now into a little bit of some of the basic drugs that we use. So I think probably the, the first, the most famous uh, being penicillin, which I believe is a beta-lactam antibiotic. So maybe let's start with those. How do those work, Rachel? Yeah, so we'll start with beta-lactams, and penicillins are the ones that we think of first, just like you said. And in general, be- in general penicillins have, have good gram-positive activity. They don't cover MRSA, um, and, but some of them do contain a beta-lactamase inhibitor, which extends the spectrum of activity. Remember, the broadest penicillin is pip- piperacillin tazobactam, or Zosin, which is the only, an, in, the only one in this class that covers Pseudomonas. And so when you say a beta-lactamase, tell me a little more about that. Let's just, in case people don't know. So penicillin, oxacillin, nafcillin, these are all not, these are just basic penicillins, right? Yeah, they're beta-lactams, but they don't include a beta-lactamase inhibitor. So uh, one of the resistance mechanisms of the organisms is to, um, is to, to upregulate their beta-lactamase, their ability to, to cleave beta-lactams. Um, and so the addition of a beta-lactamase inhibitor, something like, for example, ampicillin sulbactam, um, this extends the gram-negative activity of, of ampicillin and also um, adds the additional coverage of MSSA. Okay, so one protective mechanism that bacteria have developed is they can inactivate uh, beta-lactams uh, by using beta-lactamase. So we then came back at them and said, well, all right, then we're going to have a beta-lactamase inhibitor, so you can't do that. So it protects uh, and gives us some ability to use, for example, ampicillin. By adding solbactam, we now get a more powerful antibiotic. Exactly. Unfortunately, some bacteria are even smarter than us, uh, and, and they continue to get smarter and smarter all the time. And so some organisms are extended beta-lactamase producers, ESBL-producing organisms, and and those organisms are not going to be susceptible even to antibiotics, even to a beta-lactam and beta-lactamase inhibitor combination, and we'll have to use a, a different class of antibiotics, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, Okay, so when we say ESBLs, that's what we mean, extended spectrum beta-lactamase, inhib- uh, beta-lactamase producers. And so uh, they need a special treatment, and we'll get to that. All right, so uh, how about cephalosporins? That's another very common one. Certainly here, our go-to um, surgical prophylaxis is ANCEF. Uh, it varies from institution to institution, but people are very familiar with cephalosporins. So tell me about those. Yeah, cephalosporins are also beta-lactams. In general, they have a pretty good gram-positive activity, and their gram-negative coverage improves from first to fourth generation. I, I mentioned that they have good gram-positive coverage, but remember that enterococcus is intrinsically resistant to cephalosporins. 
Cefazolin is, is sort of is the first generation in the in the antibiotic that most people are familiar with for surgical prophylaxis, and it's it's an ideal agent for perioperative prophylaxis because it covers skin flora so well. It also still has some gram negative coverage. Um, and certainly would cover some non-hospital-acquired pathogens. It does cover E. coli, although there is some resistance developing. And of course, it wouldn't cover Pseudomonas. Then as you go up in the generation, so second generations, these would be drugs like cefoxetin or cefotetan. They have a little bit less gram-positive activity, but increased gram-negative coverage, although again, not Pseudomonas. Then third generations would be drugs like ceftriaxone or ceftazidime. Again, even better gram-negative coverage, ceftriaxone being a drug that most people are familiar with using um, for a non-catheter-associated UTI or um, a pyelonephritis from, in a patient who's coming from the community. Uh, there, it's also a good agent um, to use for community-acquired pneumonia in addition to azithromycin, for example. Cefepime is a fourth generation which again has pretty good gram-positive coverage, but this is the drug that has really good gram-negative coverage and, and covers pseudomonas. So this would be a great agent to use for hospital-acquired pneumonia or urosepsis that's developed um, while a patient's hospitalized. And cefepime we think of uh, as being similar in its coverage to zosin. Is that right? With some differences. That's right. Um, the the gram negative coverage is very similar. The difference is that remember cephalosporins don't cover enterococcus, so piptazo um, would cover enterococcus and also has really good anaerobic coverage, where cefepime doesn't cover anaerobes and doesn't cover enterococcus. So. In infections where those aren't concerns, something like a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, cefepime would be the best option. If you're treating an intra-abdominal infection, that's where piptazo becomes more attractive because it also has the enterococcal and anaerobic coverage. Great. And just to uh, make sure we say, piptazo is piperacillin tazobactam, which is zosin. Uh, and I will say that actually I had a listener from Germany tell me the other day that they have different uh, trade names there. So when we say things like Versed, they don't actually know what we're talking about. So we should, as a reminder to myself, that uh, as you were doing, Rachel, we should try to use generic names, whatever possible. So piperacillin tazobactam is zosin. And for the record, midazolam is Versed. All right. So uh, what about, is there a fifth generation? Yeah, so there are some new developments uh, in the realm of cephalosporins that are that are fairly exciting. So there is a fifth-generation cephalosporin, septeroline, which actually covers MRSA, um, and that's that's uh, fairly exciting, especially in patients who require salvage therapy for MRSA bacteremia or endocarditis. It does also have good gram-negative coverage, but doesn't cover pseudomonas. So I kind of think of septeroline as ceftriaxone plus MRSA coverage. There also there are also some other newer novel cephalosporin um, beta lactamase combinations. So ceftolazine and tazobactam is a is a new drug, which is a novel cephalosporin and a beta lactamase inhibitor. It doesn't cover staph very well, um, but does cover gram negatives very well. It has very good gram negative coverage and covers some strains of multi drug resistant pseudomonas, but doesn't um, cover any of our carbapenemase producing organisms, which we'll talk a little bit about when we get to the carbapenems. It has unreliable anaerobic coverage. So this is really um, the place in therapy right now is that it's typically reserved for salvage therapy for multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. Okay. There's also another new cephalosporin combination, septazidine avibactam, which is a third-generation cephalosporin with a beta-lactamase inhibitor combination. It has good gram-positive coverage as well, similar to ceftazidime, but has excellent gram-negative coverage. Again, covers some strains of multidrug-resistant pseudomonas, but and may have a role in the coverage of some ESBL-producing organisms that we talked about before, extended spectrum beta-lactamase producers, as well as perhaps some carbapenemase producers. That hasn't been 
hugely sort of hashed out in the literature, but but a possible role for this um, combination, which is exciting, especially when we are frequently now, unfortunately, faced with m smarter bugs that have developed more resistance. Again, this combination would have unreli has unreliable anaerobic coverage. So again, this drug is also um, typically being reserved for salvage therapy for multi-drug gram-negative infections. Okay, so this is the ongoing battle. We develop a new drug, the bacteria acquire resistance, we need to come up with something new, whether it's a combination drug or something else. And so these are our latest attempts. So uh, what about estreonam? Estreonam is uh, another one we hear a fair amount. What is What exactly is that? Where does that fit in? Estreonam is a monobactam. The benefit of estreonam is that there's no risk of cross-reactivity in patients who have a, a severe penicillin allergy. So remember that in patients who have a penicillin allergy, cephalosporins are often options if they have a mild reaction to penicillins. The cross-reactivity of, of cephalosporins in a patient with a penicillin allergy um, has variable reports in the literature, but it's probably less than 10%. Estreonam with astrinam, there is zero cross-reactivity. So even in patients who have an anaphylactic reaction to penicillins, you could safely use astrinam. Astrinam has no gram-positive coverage. It does have fairly good gram-negative coverage. Um, it does cover pseudomonas, which is which is nice, um, especially in our sick patients in the ICU. However, astrinam is almost never monotherapy because it only covers gram-negative organisms. So often if you're using astrinam as an alternative to a beta-lactam like cefepime or piperacillin tazobactam, you would also want to make sure that you're using vancomycin because not only would you be missing MRSA, but also any staph MSSA included, as well as strep um, and enterococcus. Great. So for someone with a severe penicillin allergy who we couldn't even use a cephalosporin, then we would potentially, we could use estreonam and vancomycin and get broad coverage. Exactly. All right. Um, so you had mentioned before carbapenems in the sense of mentioning that there are carbapenem-resistant organisms. So let's just talk about carbapenems themselves. What are they and how do they work? Carbapenems are very broad-spectrum agents. They have excellent gram-negative coverage. Their coverage includes extended-spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitors and pseudomonas, except for erdapenem. Um, they have really good gram-positive coverage as well, although they don't cover MRSA. Um, they, they typically cover strep, and um, they have variable, variable enterococcal coverage, and, and maybe we can just go through a couple of examples. Sure, But they have great. excellent anaerobic coverage as well. So erdapenem... Um, is, is the first here on the list. And I think erdapenem is, is an excellent choice for non-hospital-acquired intra-abdominal infections because it has very good gram-positive coverage but doesn't cover enterococcus. It does have good gram-negative coverage covering some ESBL-producing bacteria, but it doesn't cover pseudomonas. That's why I mentioned that it would be good for a non-hospital-acquired intra-abdominal infection. And but just it, to just clarify, so that's because... When it's a community-acquired infection, we worry less about pseudomonas and enterococcus. Correct. Okay. It also has excellent anaerobic coverage, which is something we would want to cover in an intra-abdominal infection patient. Great. All right. Um, so that's erdapenem. And then if we needed to step it up from there, what would be next? Yeah, there are two um, two primary options, meropenem and imipenem psilostatin. Meropenem um, has, again, good gram-positive coverage. It covers enterococcus as well. It also has excellent gram-negative coverage, including pseudomonas as well as ESBL-producing organisms and has excellent anaerobic coverage. Ibipenem psilostatin has very similar coverage to meropenem. Meropenem is slightly better with its coverage of enterococcus, but the gram-negative coverage is very similar. One thing to keep in mind about imipenem psilostatin is that it has 
some adverse effects that are concerning, um, including neurotoxicity or seizures, particularly in patients with renal dysfunction. So where the drug can accumulate in, in patients with renal dysfunction, this drug can accumulate. So caution should be used in, in a, the appropriate dosing of imipenem-silostatin. Great. Uh, now, I kind of, in, in my head, I think we, and I think many of us think, uh, okay, the patient's on Zosin and they're not getting better. Let's increase our coverage to meropenem. Is that accurate? Is that how you think of it, that we're, that's, meropenem is a broader coverage than Zosin? Yeah, in general, meropenem has better gram-negative activity in that it covers ESBL-producing organisms. Um, and especially if a patient has been exposed to Piperacil and Tazobactam for an extended period of time, if they've already been on, on Piperacil and Tazobactam for a week or so, um, then there certainly is a risk, especially in the absence of source control. Um, and so meropenem would be the would be a common option to step up to. Okay. The other way to do that would be to consider using an consider adding an aminoglycoside um, in combination with either piperacil and tazobactam or with cefepime. Um, but typically, the the next step that we use is to go up to a carbapenem. Great. All right. So, Rachel, before we move on to fluoroquinolones, let me ask, just to kind of put it into some clinical context, let's say that we had a critically ill patient in the ICU with an intra-abdominal infection, and we wanted to start uh, an empiric antibiotic. Let's say we had a non-penicillin allergic patient. What would be your empiric antibiotic of choice? In a non-penicillin allergic patient, I think piperacillin tazobactam is probably the best option because it does provide good gram-positive coverage, including enterococcus, good gram-negative coverage, including pseudomonas, and good anaerobic coverage. So piperacillin tazobactam would be the agent of choice in most institutions um, in a non-penicillin allergic patient. Great. All right. And then what if you had a penicillin allergic patient who had, let's say, a rash uh, when they were a kid when they got penicillin, um, but they have tolerated, let's say, uh, cefazolin? In those patients, I think, especially if you know that the patient has, has tolerated cefazolin in the past, I think you could very comfortably use a cephalosporin. Um, and so in, if that were the case, I would, I would use cefepime plus metronidazole. Remember that cefepime doesn't have any anaerobic coverage. Um, so metronidazole would need to be added in order to get good anaerobic coverage. And then vancomycin would be sort of a plus minus, depending on the patient's severity of illness. We would be less concerned about MRSA, but cefepime doesn't cover enterococcus. And if that was a concern, then you would probably add vancomycin um, to empirically cover enterococcus. Okay, great. And then let's say you had a patient who, when they got uh, penicillin, had had an anaphylactic reaction. What would you do for them? In those patients, uh, in patients who have had an anaphylactic reaction, a life-threatening reaction to penicillin, um, I would avoid any penicillin, cephalosporin, probably even a carbapenem, just because of the risk of cross-reactivity. Um, and, and so in those patients, I think you could use estrianam in combination with metronidazole and vancomycin. You could also consider a fluoroquinolone, again, in combination with metronidazole and vancomycin. One thing to consider, though, in, in patients who have a life-threatening allergy to penicillin is their previous antibiotic exposure because the choices of antibiotic therapy are much more narrow for them. And so these patients have often been exposed to fluoroquinolones in the past or in the outpatient setting. And so it might uh, in those patients, uh, fluoroquinolones are, are usually less preferred because of the concern for resistance that's developed. And I would probably preferentially use astrianam in a very sick patient because at our institution and, and probably at other similar institutions, uh, we do have some resistance um, to astrianam, especially with pseudomonas. And so I might even consider adding an aminoglycoside if I was uh, left with the choice of astrianam or fluoroquinolone as my gram-negative coverage. 
Okay, great. That's really helpful. And the other question is, when we talk about the resistance uh, or the, sorry, the reaction to uh, some of these drugs or if people have allergies, Rachel, what's the cutoff? So we hear things all the time. Someone might have had a rash. Maybe someone says, oh, I get hives. Someone says, oh, you know, I get an itchy throat. Or then, of course, you have people say, oh, my tongue swells up. And so I think clearly if they're having airway involvement swelling, then that's we're going to just count that in the life-threatening category. But what about does hives differ from a rash? And how do you think about that? Yeah, so I, hives does just... Hives do differ from a rash. Um, it's, it's, it's especially important to get some history around what happened when the patient took the drug in the past and how long ago did it happen. If you have a patient who is in their 60s or 70s and they report this rash or even hives as a small child and they've just been told by their parents to avoid penicillins, those are patients who you might try again with a cephalosporin. Maybe not rechallenge with a penicillin unless you have the ability to do a penicillin skin test, but you might rechallenge with a cephalosporin, keeping in mind that the cross reactivity is, is low. Um, these patients may have had a reaction because of impurities in the drug that were common many years ago that are, are not necessarily a concern anymore. If a patient has recently had hives and they're describing a full body rash and, and some swelling, those are patients who I would be less likely to rechallenge. Although, if there's ever, in my opinion, if there's ever a place to rechallenge, it would be in the ICU where um, you have good close monitoring and the ability to get an advanced airway pretty quickly if you need to. Um, I'm not advocating that we rechallenge every patient, but a good history can really help guide whether or not you think it would be safe to rechallenge with a cephalosporin. Additionally, there have been some reports, recent reports in the literature of, of really successful programs where um, an IG fellow or even a pharmacist team um, uh, expedites the ability for a patient to have a penicillin skin test. And if you're able to do that relatively quickly, perhaps they only get one dose of, a, of an inferior therapy. And then if their penicillin skin test is negative, then you're able to be more confident in your, in your ability to use a beta-lactam. Great. And from the time you place it until the time you get your information, how long does that take? It's usually pretty quick. Um, usually within an hour or so, you should have the answer. Oh, great. Well, that's fantastic. All right. And in general, you mentioned the ICU being a very safe place to, or relatively safe place to, to challenge someone. And the other would be, of course, the operating room where you already have a secure airway and you're monitoring constantly. And so um, not that you would take someone with a known anaphylactic reaction and do it, but you certainly, uh, if you think it's relatively low risk, it's uh, in the operating room, it's a relatively safe place as well. Certainly, I would uh, recommend that you discuss your hospital policy before doing it um, uh, because it can vary from place to place as to what the guidelines are. Absolutely. I, ca I can't really put enough emphasis on how important a good history is, though, because sometimes there's a, a as, and as you know, in the operating room, there's often patients come in with a list of allergies on their profile and there's no reaction noted. And so understanding what the reaction is can be really, really helpful because sometimes it's GI upset. Sometimes it's something that's not an allergic reaction at all. And those patients could very safely be challenged with whatever the drug is that they that they have uh, a reported reaction to. Great. All right. So let's talk about another category of medications, fluoroquinolones. How do those differ from what we've discussed so far? Fluoroquinolones um, actually work uh, not on the cell wall, but they actually inhibit DNA replication. They're concentration-dependent killing uh, drugs, and they're often used in patients with severe penicillin allergy. They're generally considered broad-spectrum, but Fluoroquinolones come along with high rates of resistance, which limit their utility. 
Um, there are a number of fluoroquinolones that are options. Um, the most common fluoroquinolones are moxifloxacin, ciprofloxacin, and levofloxacin. There's actually a new fluoroquinolone on the market, but I'm not really going to talk about that one today. Um, moxifloxacin is a, in, is a drug that covers strep fairly well. Um, it doesn't have enterococcal coverage, but it does have good gram-negative coverage without, the, without pseudomonal coverage. So good gram-negatives without pseudomonas, but good strep coverage, which makes it a good option for community-acquired pneumonia, especially in a patient with uh, a penicillin allergy. It also covers atypical, so you wouldn't need to add another agent to cover atypical organisms. Ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin do both cover pseudomonas, so these have good gram-negative coverage, including pseudomonas. Ciprofloxacin has very limited gram-positive coverage. It does cover strep, but not to the same degree that moxifloxacin would. It does have good atypical coverage. Um, so ciprofloxacin would be an option really to cover gram-negative organisms. Um, and, and here we, we often reserve ciprofloxacin for patients who um, either have a gram-negative organism and need an option that's enteral um, or who have a penicillin allergy. And then levofloxacin is kind of a combination of the two. It, it covers pseudomonas and also has pretty good gram-positive coverage, um, including strep. It also has good atypical coverage. So um, levofloxacin is a, is a very broad-spectrum agent, but then with that comes the potential for it to be overutilized. And that's where we've seen resistance develop with the overutilization of fluoroquinolones. Great. And just to, again, for people out there who may be unclear, when you say atypicals, just give me a basic, what do, you, what do, we, what do we mean when we say atypicals? Atypical organisms include organisms like Legionella, Mycoplasma, or Chlamydia. They're called atypicals because their symptoms are often different than, especially when you're thinking about pneumonia, their symptoms are different than those who present with more common bacteria. Okay. And I think, for example, the chest x-ray findings tend to be different. You don't tend to see the same kind of lobar pneumonia with something like Mycoplasma that you would with something like Strep or Staph. All right. So we talked about fluoroquinolones. What about vancomycin? Everybody, of course, is known and uh, used, I'm sure, vancomycin. How do we categorize vancomycin? Vancomycin is actually a glycopeptide um, that inhibits cell wall synthesis. We consider it cytal, but slowly cytal, so it doesn't have the rapid bactericidal activity that uh, a penicillin might have, like oxacillin or nafcillin. Um, it's killing its dependent, like I talked about in the beginning, on the area under the curb over the MIC, so sort of total exposure. We use therapeutic drug monitoring to, to monitor for efficacy and toxicity related to vancomycin, and for that we typically measure trough concentrations. Vancomycin has excellent gram-positive coverage, but remember it's not, ideal for the, it's not an ideal agent for MSSA. There actually have been published studies that have demonstrated better outcomes, including a mortality benefit, in patients who have pneumonia and um, associated bacteremia with MSSA, with methicillin-susceptible Staph aureus. Outcomes are better, and like I said, a mortality benefit when using oxacillin, nafcillin, or cefazolin, one of those more rapidly bactericidal agents. It is a really good option, though, for MRSA. Uh, it also covers enterococcus, although in many institutions we're seeing a high rate of um, enterococcus facium resistance. It doesn't have any gram-negative coverage also, so a good gram-positive agent, but, but not good for gram-negative organisms. And we do also use vancomycin enterally um, for the treatment of Clostridium difficile infection. When you use vancomycin enterally, it's not systemically absorbed, so it's really just the local action that you're getting. Great. And sometimes we'll use it both orally and rectally uh, for those infections. Um, now, you mentioned that, and I just want to emphasize this because it's really important, is that uh, vancomycin 
is the treatment of choice for MRSA, but is not the treatment of choice for MSSA. We often will have staff. We don't yet know what kind of staff, so we start vancomycin, and then we don't. We just keep it on because we figure, well, it'll treat the staff. But we don't want to do that, right? And you guys are really great about telling us, hey, this came back as MSSA. We need to switch to oxacillin or something like that. Yeah, and it's not just because it's more narrow. It's really because there are outcomes, benefits to using those those um, more optimal agents. Right. Okay, great. Now, you've mentioned a couple times uh, that depending on the situation, we might want to add an aminoglycoside. So tell me about those. Aminoglycoside are inhibitors of protein synthesis. And like I mentioned before, they're the prototypical concentration-dependent killers. So they're killing as peak-dependent. They also have a lot of of toxicity related to them, and that's what limits their utility. Um, They have what we call trough-dependent toxicity, and we primarily think of nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity. They're generally considered add-on therapy, except in a few situations. You could potentially use them as monotherapy for a UTI or as monotherapy for your perioperative um, or peripartum gram-negative coverage. They're typically used synergistically for selected gram-positive or infections or for resistant gram-negative infections. The dosing, though, when you're using for synergistically for a gram-positive infection like endocarditis would be much different than what you would use in a patient who is severely septic where you're concerned about a resistant gram-negative organism. Presumably, you would use a higher dose for that second case. Exactly, you're you're looking for a higher, a much higher peak, and and we could get into some debate about what that that target peak concentration would be, but it's certainly much higher than what you would use for a gram positive infection, um, and so um, because the peak of the antibiotic is is so important, we often again use therapeutic drug monitoring to make sure that we have achieved our target peak. And then also we monitor trough concentrations to ensure that we're not giving another dose too soon, which would increase the risk of those toxicities that I mentioned. Right. And so this is different than vancomycin, where we want the total area under the curve. We want it always to be relatively high. We don't want the trough to be too low, whereas with aminoglycosides, we want the trough to be low, not high. Exactly. Great. All right. So are there common aminoglycosides that we should kind of, people should know? Yes. We... So the the aminoglycosides that you would tend to use for a gram-negative infection would be gentamicin, tobramycin, or amikacin. Gentamicin and tobramycin are are dosed pretty similarly. They have very similar gram-negative coverage. Neither um, are good for gram-positive coverage, although gentamicin is an option, like I mentioned, for um, gram-positive synergy in combination with a cell wall active agent. Amikacin has a little bit broader gram-negative coverage. So if you have a patient who you know has been exposed to an aminoglycoside in the past or who you know has a history of a high MIC to gentamicin or tobramycin, amikacin would be the drug that you would use. We try to reserve amikacin for those cases where we are suspecting a a really resistant gram-negative organism. The dosing of um, gentamicin and tobramycin is similar. where amikacin, the dosing, and the peak and trough concentrations that you're looking for are about four times that of what you would use for gentamicin or tobramycin. Great. And we should just say all every institution is going to have what we call an antibiogram, right, which is going to tell you at your institution what susceptibilities are, what resistance rates are, and that will guide your choice of antibiotic for a given infection. Uh, we often carry ours around in the ICU, and certainly I'm sure you guys either have it memorized or carried around with you at all times, but that is something everyone should, should know about at their own institution. And I absolutely agree. An antibiogram is so pivotally important in your selection of antimicrobial agents because because resistance patterns 
can be different across the country and around the world. And so it's really important to understand, for example, what's the best option for pseudomonas at your institution um, and which aminoglycoside gives you the most bang for your buck, if you will, the, the most extra coverage on top of, of your typical cell wall active agents. So an antibiogram is extremely important. And if you can even get down to, if you have the data to be able to get a unit-specific antibiogram, because we've even seen um, here at our institution and at other like institutions that antibiograms can be quite different between ICUs even. And so an, institu uh, an institution-specific antibiogram is, is, I would say, um, vital. And what would be ideal is if you could even have a unit-specific antibiogram. That's great. All right. Let's move on to macrolides. How do those work? So macrolides um, also inhibit protein synthesis. They're typically, they're concentration-dependent killers. Um, and the macrolide that we talk about most commonly, um, at least in the ICU, is azithromycin. Um, azithromycin has some strep coverage. It has excellent atypical coverage, and that's really why we use it um, in our ICU patients. So it's an ideal agent for complicated COPD exacerbations or or as an adjunct to ceftriaxone for community-acquired pneumonia. There are some other uses of azithromycin. It may have immunomodulatory effects in pseudomonas colonization, so you may see this in, in, um, in patients who have chronic pseudomonas colonization or who are at high risk for that. Um, but that's not our typical use of, of azithromycin. Okay. What about linazolid? That's another one we hear a lot. Where does that fit in? Linazolid is another option um, for your gram-positive infection. So um, linazolid inhibits, again, protein synthesis. It's bacteriostatic, however. It has very good gram-positive coverage, including MRSA and vancomycin-resistant e um, It covers a much more um, e enterococcus facium than, than vancomycin would. It doesn't have any gram-negative coverage, however. Um, and so this would be something that you would use if you, if you knew that you had an, uh, an infection with, with just a resistant gram-positive or in addition to a, an agent that has gram-negative coverage. There are some toxicities to be aware of. So there's a theoretical toxicity of serotonin syndrome um, because linazolid was actually first discovered as an MAOI, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is a, a pretty unique uh, structure of this, of this drug, which then brings in the concern of when you use concomitantly with a serotonergic agent, the risk of, of serotonin syndrome. Um, there, so there certainly have been case reports in the literature. Uh, I think this would have to be something that we use clinical judgment on in deciding whether or not to continue other serotonergic agents or to discontinue them. The half-life of the other agents would need to be considered. And the, the uh, expected duration of utilization of linazolid in considering whether or not to stop or to just monitor. In the ICU, I think we have the luxury of being able to monitor pretty closely, and, and we may just continue the serotonergic agents and, and watch closely. The other toxicity that um, is common with linazolid is thrombocytopenia. And so especially when patients are on linazolid for long courses, we, we encounter thrombocytopenia fairly regularly. And so that would be something that would also need to be considered. It's, it's not something, uh, I would say that there's not a threshold of, of platelet count that you would need in order to start linazolid, but something to think um, very critically about in, in patients who, who may be at risk for bleeding or who already have thrombocytopenia. Great. And there's something, remind me, I know in my head, I think linazolid starts with an L, lungs start with an L, there's something. It's either got great lung coverage or very bad lung coverage. Yeah, it's a good option for a pneumonia, actually. Um, 
when compared with vancomycin, it was not inferior. And so um, it is a drug that might be considered for an MRSA pneumonia, um, especially with a necrotizing MRSA pneumonia. Great. All right. And then how about daptomycin? Is that, it sounds like vancomycin. Is it similar? Daptomycin is another agent that covers gram-positive organisms. Um, its coverage is is similar to that of linezolid with excellent gram-positive coverage of both MRSA and resistant enterococcal species. Um, it d- exhibits concentration-dependent bactericidal activity. However, um, remember, it doesn't have any gram-negative coverage because I, I mentioned that the coverage is very similar to that of linezolid. So it's typically reserved for salvage therapy for MRSA bacteremia or VRE infection, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. And this one actually can't be used for a respiratory infection because the drug binds to surfactant. So daptomycin would not be an agent that you would use for uh, a pneumonia, but could be used for other sources of infection. It does require CK monitoring. One of the big adverse effects of, de- of daptomycin is myopathy. So especially in patients with renal insufficiency, CK monitoring at baseline and then weekly is recommended. Great. Another common one, actually, that I think people probably may have taken themselves as an outpatient for a variety of things would be sulfanamide uh, antibiotics, uh, the most typical, I think, being trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. What role does that play? Yeah, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole is an important um, drug in, in our um, in our arsenal, if you will. Um, the the trade name is Bactrim. That's what m- uh, many people might think of when they're hearing this. Um, Trimethoprim sulfa has a good staph coverage. It covers MRSA, um, but isn't a great drug for enterococcus or for strep. It also has fairly good gram-negative coverage, um, although there is some resistance developing. It does not cover Pseudomonas, but it is the ideal agent for Stenotrophomonas or for PCP. So it's a first-line treatment um, option for so PCP being pneumocystis. Um, so it's the first-line treatment option for, for pneumocystis pneumonia. It's a it's the first-line option for Cynotrophomonas. Um, it would be a good agent for cutaneous abscess um, or salvage therapy or PO therapy, enteral therapy for an MRSA infection. It's really a poor empiric choice for urinary tract infection in places that have high, re- have high um, E. coli resistance rates. So again, your antibiogram would be important here in making that decision. Um, some of the toxicities and things to be concerned about would be um, uh, increases in serum creatinine, hyperkalemia, hypoglycemia, and bone marrow toxicity. Bone marrow toxicity is typically related to total exposure, and so higher doses for longer periods of time would be more associated with bone marrow toxicity than, for example, a low dose that you might use for a UTI. Great. All right. Clindamycin is another uh, common drug. Where does that fit in? Clindamycin is an agent that um, is often used to cover oral anaerobes and gram-positive organisms. However, it should be noted that clindamycin has variable strep coverage, and actually there's a lot of resistance developing, a lot of staphylococcal resistance developing. It also doesn't cover any gram-negative organisms. And uh, as many people probably recall, it has a risk of of Clostridium difficile infection as well, a pretty high risk of of C. diff infection. And so clindamycin is, is not a drug of choice in, in many cases, although it might be um, a good agent for um, an intraoral abscess or um, tooth infection, something like that, because it has good gram-positive coverage and it covers oral anaerobes well. Okay. I remember in med school being taught 
For anaerobic infections above the waist, use Clinda, and uh, below the waist to use, or maybe not waist, it must have been chest or something, maybe below, above the diaphragm, that's what it was. Above the diaphragm, use Clinda, below the diaphragm, use uh, use Flagyl, which is um, metronidazole. Is that that's true? That's generally true. Yeah, that's that's generally true. Um, so for an intra-abdominal infection, I wouldn't... I would not recommend using clindamycin because bacteroides the, is, uh, organ, is the anaerobe that we're usually most concerned about, and clindamycin doesn't cover bacteroides extremely well. Okay. How about, um, what is colistin? Colistin is uh, a drug that unfortunately we're, we're using more of. Um, it's a polymyxin. It acts like a like cationic detergent. It causes alteration of the osmotic barrier um, of the cells. It's a concentration-dependent bactericidal agent. So this is a drug that we reserve for multidrug-resistant gram-negative organisms. It's, it's gram-negative coverage is a little bit hard to remember, I think, sometimes. Um, it's active against Acinetobacter and E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, and Pseudomonas. But there's a pretty long list of gram-negatives that it's not active against, which include Proteus, um, which is a fairly common organism. So uh, colistin would be something that you would not use empirically, um, but something that you might use in a patient who has a multidrug-resistant gram-negative infection. It doesn't have any gram-positive coverage or anaerobic coverage, and the toxicity to be primarily concerned about here is nephrotoxicity, similar in, in rates similar to that of aminoglycosides. Okay, and I would say if you're considering colistin, at least if you have the ability to get uh, the infectious disease team involved and a pharmacist involved, it would be very useful. This is, for me, I certainly am not starting colistin without having ID on board. Now, you may be at a place where you don't have that luxury, in which case you may have to make these decisions on your own. But if you have the ability to get an infectious disease consult, if you're at a point where you're thinking about this drug, I certainly would recommend it. All right. So, um, I am. I've never heard of this, Rachel. But I'm going to ask you about glycyclosine. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's the that's the class of agents that um, tigacycline falls into. Ah, okay. uh, tigacycline is a tetracycline derivative. And uh, in, initially, was um, there was a lot of hope that tigacycline might be a really good agent for multidrug-resistant gram-negative organisms. However, because it's difficult to obtain adequate peak serum concentrations. The use of the agent is relatively limited for things like pneumonia or bacteremia because, like we talked about before, it's it's hard to achieve the concentrations that you need to get good activity. And it's generally considered bacteriostatic, so it doesn't have rapidly cytal activity. Um, so this is a drug that's probably going to be reserved for multidrug-resistant gram-negative organisms. It does have some gram-positive activity. It does have fairly good gram-negative coverage, except for Pseudomonas proteus and Providencia. Um, but again, because of the limitations in the concentrations that you can achieve, uh, this, the role of this drug is relatively limited. All right. And one thing we didn't cover is metronidazole, also known as flagyl, although I did say that uh, below the diaphragm I was taught use for anaerobic uh, coverage, use metronidazole. Um, where do we use that? Do we use it at all in the ICU? Absolutely. Metronidazole is our, is our workhorse anaerobic agent. Um, it's it has excellent anaerobic coverage. It covers um, m many of our bacteroides species, including some bacteroides species that are, are becoming a little bit resistant. Um, so metronidazole is a great option. But remember that some of our broad-spectrum agents have good anaerobic coverage, including piperacillin, tazobactam, and the carbapenems. So you wouldn't need to add metronidazole to an agent that had good anaerobic coverage, but certainly to our 
to our broad spectrum agents that don't have good anaerobic coverage, metronidazole would need to be added. So cefepime, for example. Cefepime or fluoroquinolones, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, it is also the first line agent for mild to moderate Clostridium difficile, so you may see it used in, in that scenario. The one thing to remember is that it can't be co-administered with alcohol, so because of the disulfiram-like reaction, um, that would be something to avoid. Less of a concern in the ICU, um, but for those who may have some outpatient, um, who, who work with outpatients as well, that would be something to, to warn them of. Great. Now, you mentioned before that uh, there's increasing resistance of um, some Enterococcus species to vancomycin. So if you had um, vancomycin-resistant Enterococcus faecalis, um, what would you use to treat that? Yeah, this is a question I get a lot in the ICU because um, we, we are very concerned about vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, um, but enterococcus faecalis is actually quite susceptible to ampicillin. And so actually, even if E. faecalis is vancomycin-resistant, it's often still susceptible to ampicillin. And so... Um, a lot of folks want to jump right to linezolid, but if you are dealing with efecalis, obviously an, your institution-specific antibiogram should be consulted, but ampicillin might be a very viable option. Whereas for efacium, enterococcus facium, there is high ampicillin resistance as well as high vancomycin resistance. And so if you're dealing with a vancomycin-resistant efacium, that's where you would probably want to consider using linezolid or daptomycin as an alternative. Great. All right, Rachel, that was fantastic. I think that was really a great overview of bugs and drugs, as we say. Um, And I think we'll wrap this episode up here, and then we'll come back and do uh, the common infections in the IC. But before we do, let me just ask you, Rachel, are there any last uh, little things you wanted to add? Yeah, I think we talked about toxicity of some specific antimicrobials. And I think um, just a couple other things that I think about in the ICU include... um, drugs that have the potential to prolong the QTC interval. And so I, I do want to mention that fluoroquinolones have some other toxicities. They're very commonly used, and, and most often they're very well tolerated, but they do have the potential to prolong the QTC interval. They also have been recently sort of in the, even in the lay press, um, about their potential to cause bone and tendon toxicity. And so that's something that we probably also want to keep in mind, especially for long-term administration. They also, interestingly, um, when you administer them concomitantly with with divalent cations, so things like calcium, magnesium, or zinc, um, absorption is actually quite minimal because it, because it ke- they can chelate. So um, when you give these drugs enterally, they have to be they have to be separated from those things. So separated from a multivitamin for sure, but even possibly separated from tube feeds um, when if you're using them through an enteral tube. Great. The other thing that came to mind was when we talked about surgical prophylaxis, we mentioned that cefazolin is often used, and that's uh, for many uh, surgical procedures, but usually for intra-abdominal cases, at least here, we do something else. And what do we do for that, Rachel? At our institution, we've we've gone to just adding metronidazole to cefazolin for intra-abdominal cases, but it's also quite... Um, quite a good option to consider using cefoxetin or cefotetin. These are second-generation cephalosporins that do have um, better gram-negative coverage, um, potentially, and also cover some anaerobes. So I think either a second-generation uh, cephalosporin that has some anaerobic coverage would be a good option, or using cefazolin with the addition of metronidazole. Great. All right. So now I do think we can wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, and I look forward to doing our second recording soon. It's a pleasure. 
All right, that was really fantastic. Uh, remember, uh, check out the website, accrac.com, where you can leave comments. Let us know. Do you have a different approach to handling uh, infections in the ICU? How do you think about different uh, antibiotic combinations? Let us know if you have anything we can all learn from. Leave a comment on the website. You can also, of course, email me at accrac at accrac.com. And if you haven't uh, already, or if you have but not for a little while, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Also, if you want to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even just a dollar or two really helps. And we appreciate it. We want to make sure that we can keep the show free and available uh, to everyone out there. It really means a lot. Thank you. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Rachel Kruer. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.